0: Good evening and good day. How are you doing all? I hope you're doing well. Uh, Welcome to the new episode. Today we are dealing with uh, geopolitics and world history. And as always, you have asked me a bunch of wonderful questions and I have picked a few of these. So uh, like I keep saying, uh, geopolitics is a sport. It is a sport in which the ultimate objective is basically the control of the world, the prize is the world, it is global domination, it is the pursuit of, of uh, the the world's resources, it's the pursuit of power, it's the pursuit of influence and there are no rules. You make up the rules as you go. If you are a powerful country, you get to set the rules. If you are not a powerful country, you have to follow the rules rules that others set. So that is what geopolitics is about. It's about the pursuit of the national interest on a global scale in the competition with other nations that are there on the global stage. So that's what geopolitics is. And it is closely related to history because every geopolitical issue has its root in historical events. So that's why these two uh, topics are a good fit to go together. So that's what we'll talk about today. And as always, I have picked a number of questions that you people have asked in the comments. But let me start with an interesting question that I've got on the live chat. So let us begin with this question by Hussein. So Hussein asks, what could have been done to avoid the breakup of India in 1947? Do the stooges who helped break India and massacre Indians deserve to be called leaders? That's a great question. So what should have been done to uh, to avoid the Br- so what should have been done in 1947? As we know, India and Pakistan were separated into two pieces by the British. Pakistan achieved was was given its independence on the 14th of August 1947. India got its independence one day later, and that's how it was done. Uh, because until then, India was a dominion of the of the of Britain. And if India had got the independence first, then it could have rec- it, it could have refused to recognize the independence of Pakistan. So that's why Pakistan was given independence one day before India. So this is what the British engineered with the help of stooges, right? So what should actually have been done is that the British basically had no business partitioning India when they were leaving India. What should have been done was that they should have, we should have insisted that they leave India and once india became independent india should have held a nationwide referendum so like i have explained in the previous episode the 1946 election was not a referendum it cannot be construed to be to be a referendum it was simply an election for assembly so there should have been a, f- a fresh referendum under an indian uh, election commission a free and fair election without any British interference. And this referendum should have only had one question. Do the people of India desire the breakup of India or not? Yes or no, that's it. And the entire population has to be consulted. You cannot have a separate vote for a certain religion, a separate vote for different religion that way. It has to be the will of the entire nation put together. So that should have been done. And whatever was the result of that referendum, should have been respected i understand that there were many people in india who were politically motivated to create a separate to to break up the country and create a separate nation of pakistan so there was definitely the possibility of a civil war well if there is such a such a such a situation it has to be dealt with maybe there could have been a civil war well that's something you have to pass through and and resolve the problem like abraham lincoln chose to do he chose to go to war instead of allowing his nation to break up. And the war was the, the war basically resolved the matter of what, what was to be the future of the country. So maybe that could have been something that India might also have had to do. Well, if you have to do it, you have to do it. That's what leaders have to do. They have to take tough decisions. So what India needed in 1947 was a truly nationalistic leader or a bunch of leaders who who basically put the national interest over the interests of the British, because the British desired India's partition in order to continue playing a geopolitical role in the region, right? So that's what India needed. It's always a question of leadership, right? So if you had somebody like Subhash Bose, who was the tallest leader at the time, he he was, but he was not. A, he was basically marginalized. If he had not been marginalized, he would probably. Never have allowed the partition of India. And this entire two nation theory that Hindus and Muslims can't live together, that is entirely a political creation. Under Subhash Chandra Bose, Hindus, Muslims, Sikhs, Buddhists, everyone lived together, fought together, and died together for their country, for their motherland. Right? So, and whatever Hindu Muslim issues exist in the country today, in India, these are again politically created and politically motivated, because politicians need conflict in order to gain votes. If the country is at peace, then they actually have to do some development. So politicians keep this issue uh, simmering and and, uh, erupting from time to time. So this issue could have been resolved easily. We needed a strong leader. And that's the one thing we have lacked in the past thousand years. A strong leader who could unify the country with the force of his or her will, take it forward so that is what india awaits leadership strong leadership a a person who can unify this country well that is that is a person that will be essentially see we have had very few people like that we have had uh lord ram lord krishna we have had uh, some emperors like chandragupta maurya and uh kanishka and uh, the various gupta emperors we also had the cholas who almost did that who did who did it further east, and they unified India with Southeast Asia, etc. So you need leaders of that stature to properly take a country like India forward in the correct direction. So India needs leadership on that scale. And that is what India does 100% lack today. So that's what should have been done. And those people, those stooges, who helped break up India and massacre the people of India do not deserve to be called leaders. They need to be exposed. We need to, basically, we need to uh, re-evaluate these so-called leaders' role in what in, in the events that led up to 1947. Right, the people who are on our banknotes today, we need, really need to take a fresh look at their at their actions. Right, so that's something that will happen sooner or later. It's the process is beginning. So very good question, Hussein. Thank you for asking this. Now I get into the questions that you people have asked, all of you, my friends, in the comments in my videos. So let's get with, uh, start with that, with question number one. And uh, let me, where is this question? One second. Okay, let's remove this. Okay. Rahul asks, Will India ever be able to reclaim the parts of POK and Aksai Chin? If yes, then can it be said that India is a superpower? Okay, let's take a look at our trusty old map, because that's what helps us understand the situation. So this here is India, as we all know. This is where we are. POK and Aksai Chin. So if you can see this here region, if you can see my mouse pointer, is essentially roughly P-O-K, Pakistan-occupied Jammu and Kashmir. And Aksai Chin is this here region, which is currently uh, illegally occupied by China. So these are the two regions we are talking about. So the question is, will India ever be able to reclaim the parts of P-O-K and Aksai Chin? And if yes, can India be uh, said to be a superpower? So my answer to this, (laughs) it's a paradoxical answer. If India only has the ambition of reclaiming POK and Aksai Chin, then India will never be in the league of superpowers. And on the other hand, if or when India in the future becomes a superpower, Aksai Chin and POK will have long ceased to be a problem. You see, that's the paradox. A nation who has such small ambition as to reclaim the little fragments of territory others have taken from it in the past. If you have such a small amount of ambition, you will never ever be a superpower. And if one day India does become a superpower, it means that India's influence, military, cultural, economic, etc. will extend so far beyond its borders that P.O.K. and Chin would have become part of India long before India reaches the superpower status. Okay. So that is the deal. If you, If India, what is the definition of a superpower? The definition of a superpower, let's look at the map again. The definition of a superpower is a nation that is able to impose its will across the world, whether it's through economic means, military means, cultural means, etc. It's able to impose its will on the entire world at a moment's notice, at an hour's notice. It can affect the happenings throughout the world on on demand. So that is the meaning of a superpower. If India recaptures these little bits of territory, do you think it deserves to be called a superpower? No. India deserves to be called a superpower when it is able to influence the globe in a variety of ways. Economically, militarily, culturally, civilizationally, etc. So that's when India can be called a superpower. So if India, I think India can become a superpower in the next 20 years. Okay, India can, India has the incredible potential. India India has everything it needs. India has the energy the people, the the talent, the brilliance, the youth, and the potential to become a superpower in as little as 20 years. Okay, so India needs to have more ambition than reclaiming those little fragments of territory. India needs to think much bigger. I think it's possible, but let's see how things go. Okay, why has, uh, this is by Nom, why has China remained unified in one empire, an ethnic group, while Europe and India fragmented into rival kingdoms despite the Roman and Mauryan empire? So you see, the thing is that China, it is a myth that China has always been one unified nation or one unified empire or one unified ethnic group. The Han Chinese are the dominant people inside China today. Let's take a look at the map of China. So here we are to our East is China. This here is China. So throughout the history of China, China has been at war with itself. China has always had competing dynasties, competing kingdoms, competing empires. China has always been at war with itself. The present day map of China does not reflect the true reality of China's history. This entire region, if you can see my mouse pointer, uh, Tibet and uh, so-called Xinjiang, it is not Chinese territory. Historically it has never been. This region south of Mongolia, which is actually historically part of Mongolia, has been absorbed by China in the last 70, 80, 90 years. And again, east of China, the region of Hilyongjiang and Manchuria, etc. doesn't really belong to China historically. So this is what China has achieved. This is essentially the largest China has ever been under and that too under one political dispensation under one regime but historically china has been a fragmented nation it is home to many many minor minority ethnic groups which are basically subsumed under this overwhelming overpowering han uh, culture and supremacy so we have to understand what china really is china this is an accident of history that china is of this shape and size today china has always had trouble. It has always been fragmented. It has had rebellion after rebellion, civil war after civil war, incredibly brutal civil wars, my friend. I can give you some examples. For example, you had the An Lushan rebellion in the 8th century, I think. About 36 million Chinese died in that. It was a civil war within China, right? You had the uh, transition from the Ming to the Qing dynasties in the 17th century. At least 25-30 million Chinese died in that conflict. Again, a civil war. You had the Taiping Rebellion in the middle of the 19th century. Between 50 to 100 million Chinese died at the hands of their own country people. And again, in the 18th, uh, in the 19th century, you had the Dungan Revolt, in which. 10 to 20 million Chinese died at the hands of their own country people. China has always throughout history over the past two and a half thousands of history been a nation, a culture of civilization, a people that has been at war with itself again and again and again, repeatedly. So please understand this image that is projected today by the media and by Hollywood and by China itself, that China has always been this enormous empire that is a myth. Okay, China has had what's called dynastic cycles, repeated cycles of ups and downs, ups and downs, and civil war after civil war. So the answer to your question is, this is a myth. China has never had a long period of stability where it is completely unified. It's always had trouble and civil wars. Akash asks, Alaska was a part of Russia why did russia sell it to the americans and do they feel tricked or distressed now because of this decision let's take a look at the map do you know where alaska is so alaska let's go eastwards so this okay let's look here this is russia as you know uh this if you can see my mouse pointer is moscow In the past, St. Petersburg or Petrograd was the capital of Russia. And this is the entirety of Russia today. And if you go east, eastwards, then you have the Bering Sea, the Aleutian Strait, etc. And you have Alaska here. This here, Alaska, is in the northwestern corner. Of the continent of North America, and Alaska belongs to the United States of America. It's the 50th state of the United States, or whatever number it is. It is one of the 50 states of the United States. This is Alaska. So, what is the history of Alaska? So, in the 16th century onwards, the Russians started conquering Siberia. The Russian Empire. The Siberia, the region of Siberia, was at the time held by various uh, Turkic Kings and uh, these essentially were various descendants of Chingis Khan and and offshoots of the once mighty Mongol Empire. So the Russians started. The Russian Empire started conquering Siberia. Siberia is all this entire region in, in northern Asia. So they started conquering Siberia and they started pushing eastwards. And soon they reached uh, the Pacific Ocean and they pushed on eastwards. And it was a guy called Bering who crossed the Bering Strait, right? This here region, Bering Strait. It's called the Bering Strait. And he, with a bunch of explorers, made his way into Alaska. So Alaska became a Russian territory. And in the 18th century, early 18th century, the Russians made their way all the way down south to California. And they even had a couple of... uh, bases trading bases and uh, and, uh, ports etc in California itself so that was the Russian presence in Alaska historically and in North America at the time in the 17th 18th 19th centuries etc especially the 17th and 18th century uh, centuries the region of North America was under a great deal of dispute you had the British you had the French you also had some Spanish uh, footprint in this region and this was all up for grabs. This entire continent was up for, for for grabs. And the Russians were in the mix. Now, in the middle of the 19th century, the Russians entered into a conflict called the Crimean War. It was in the 1850s, early 1850s. It was Russia against France, Britain, and the Ottoman Empire. And the Russians lost this war, the Crimean War. And basically... After that, their position became quite untenable in North America and the British had a strong presence in North America and the British were at war with the Russians. And basically Russia was overstretched. It was so far from St. Petersburg, Alaska, that it was difficult to defend the place, right? Even though it was uh, rich in natural resources. And it looked for a time to Russia that they would lose the territory entirely altogether. So they hatched a plan to sell this territory to the United States. But what happened was that the United States went to war with itself in the, I think in 1851 civil war, the US civil war, which lasted about five years or so. yeah. And after the civil war ended, the Russians again made the proposal and the Americans decided to buy this territory for a nominal price, right? So it was bought for about... I think seven million dollars or something like that in today's money it's about one hundred and thirty three million dollars of twenty twenty dollars so it was a very nominal price it was just to get rid of the territory and so this was in the i think in the 1850s or 1860s that this sale was done and at the time even the many of the Americans were against the sale because they thought it's a frozen lay pl- place there's nothing to there's nothing there's no real value in there and how wrong were they because very soon, you had the Klondike Gold Rush in Alaska in the late 19th century. An immense amount of gold was discovered there. And now you know that there's a great deal of coal, there's oil, and there are so many natural resources, timber and all. So this territory is incredibly valuable. Do you know one thing? If you live in the state of Alaska in the United States, if you're a citizen of the US and you live in the, in the state, Alaska, you don't have to pay income tax. It is so rich, the state, that you don't have to pay income tax if you live there, if you're a resident. And you don't even have sales tax there. That's how incredibly rich, resource rich, this state is. So this is the reason why the Russians sold it to the Americans because they were overstretched and they were on the verge of losing the territory to the British. So they sold it off. But yes, I can imagine how, <laughs> how distressed or distressed they would feel today at losing such a valuable piece of real estate, right? But they were not tricked into it. They did it of their own volition. Both sides decided this, decided to do this transaction together. And yes, of course, if Russia had a choice today, they would definitely want to retain the territory. But well, that's it's all a part of history now. So that's how the sale of Alaska to America happened. It's definitely an incredibly valuable uh, piece of territory. The, it's a very strategic piece of piece of territory. The Americans use it to keep an eye on the Russians there. There are many military bases as well. So that is the history. Uh, there is no trickery in it. But yeah, definitely it was a great deal for the Americans and a very unfortunate thing for the Russians that they had to divest themselves of this wonderful and beautiful place. Okay. Kalpak asks, please give a brief introduction on Native American history and the causes for their loss at the the hands of the colonialists. Let's go back to the map. So the Native Americans are the people who have traditionally been the uh, true owners of North America as well as South America. So let's just talk about North America because the story in South America is more or less the same. So when the uh, age of colonialism started, the Vatican, the Church, uh, basically gave the the uh, colonizers the carte blanche that you can go and claim any territory that's not occup- that's not in which Christians don't live. So that was basically de- de- declared to be terra nullius, which means no man's land, no man's property. So even if you have non-Christians living there, it's no no man's property, and you can go and plunder the land and take it over and, and, and basically uh, acquire it for yourself and you can basically enslave the natives if they are not Christians. And that's what happened. The Spanish made their way into the Americas first. Uh, then you had the Americans, You had, I mean, sorry, the British, the Spanish, the British, and various other nations. France also had a big claim in, in North America and like I mentioned, the Russians as well to a certain extent. And what happened was that the natives of the land, unfortunately, suffered the most. They basically had no rights. They did not even get citizenship until the tw- early 20th century or thereabouts, roughly, Okay, in their own land, in their own country. So the reason of uh, so they had they have been living, the Native Americans have been living in North America and South America for tens of thousands of years. So for a very long time, you had this Cahokia first uh, dogma among historians, which said that the Native Americans reached America only about 13 or 14,000 years ago by crossing the sea bridge, which was once frozen during the last ice age from Asia. So that is the dogma that was prevalent for a very long time. And they refused to entertain any other competing alternative hypothesis or theory, despite archaeological evidence showing the presence of humans in the Americas long before 13,000 years ago. So today it is known that Americans, that Native Americans may have been present in these two continents for over 100,000 years. It's becoming increasingly uh, likely that that's the actual scenario. So these people have been living in this continent. Let's just talk about North right now. They've been living here for, it looks like more than 100,000 years. So this is their land. It's their ancestral land. It's where they have lived for a very, very long time. They are the true natives of the land. And their culture has been a shamanic, animistic, uh, polytheist culture, Right. Uh, the same principles uh, that you see in any other polytheistic culture, the worship of nature, the worship of the land, the worship of trees and animals and spirits and ancestors and various gods and deities. That is typical polytheism. It's very similar to shamanism or tengriism or various other polytheistic religions, including the culture, the cultures of India, the indigenous native cultures of India. So this is the same thing that you find in North America in various forms. And it is um, it is a trait of polytheistic cultures that they are never expansionist to a great degree, right? And they live in harmony with nature and more or less in harmony with each other. So different tribes won't really uh, do acts of shocking brutality against each other. There will be warfare and conflict, but it will all be in a reasonably civilized manner. You will have wars, you will have battles, but no barbarism, no brutality of extreme kinds and all. So these guys, these Native Americans lived this uh, reasonably peaceful life for for centu- for centuries, for thousands of years, millennia, until these colonialists came on the scene and they proceeded to enslave them, brutalize them. These guys, the Europeans had steel and they had new world diseases, sorry, old world diseases, diseases that came from Eurasia that the Native Americans had no exposure to. And they were deliberately infected with these diseases like smallpox, etc. And there was a systematic campaign of genocide. I, It would not be incorrect to say that over the centuries, at least a total of at least 100 million Native Americans were put to death by the Europeans. So it is a genocide on, on, a, on an immense scale. And even the wildlife was destroyed, the bisons, etc., so the reason so that's a brief encapsulation of what happened in North America, the genocide of the natives of North America, the loss the loss of their land, the theft of their land, the theft of their freedom, and the theft of everything they had inherited from their ancestors over, over the millennia. And the cause is that they were too peaceful, they were too civilized, they were not brutal and barbaric enough, like the Europeans. So that's what happened. And that these are the lessons of history, unfortunately, the harsh lessons of history. You can never get too civilized. You always have to be prepared for, for the worst. Okay. Recently, three mass graves were found in Canada since May 2021. Some of them were children's graves. Any idea who did this? Of course, we know who did this. These are not children's graves. These are native children's graves. So uh, this ties in with the previous question about the Native Americans. So the Native Americans were not just enslaved. Their land was not just stolen away from them. The genocide, it was not enough to kill 100 million of them. The European colonialists and and, uh, occupiers of North America proceeded to try and eradicate the North American Native American culture. So this is a pattern you see happening even in Australia to the Australian Aboriginal people. What they did was they would take away children forcibly from their parents and put them in these Catholic schools, boarding schools, in which the primary uh, thing that was taught was this foreign religion, Christianity, right? And they were forbidden to pray to their ancestral gods, they were forbidden to speak in their native languages, they were forced to speak in English, adopt Western dress, and they were forced to uh, convert to Christianity. And the conditions in these boarding schools were brutal. You cannot imagine small children, three years old, five years old, seven years old, going through such incredible cruelty and brutality. And the mortality rate was appalling. Children dr- died like flies. Little children, five-year-old kids, three-year-old kids. They were some of them were chained. You know, some of them were put in chains. Some of them were put in handcuffs for disobeying the the priest or whoever it was, the father or the mother or the nun or whatever. And this was brutality and cruelty on an unimaginable scale. You had these boarding schools, Catholic schools all across the North American continent, especially in Canada. And this was a systematic campaign which went on for generations, for several generations. And today, these things are coming to light. These abandoned boarding schools, when the land is being redeveloped, you find these 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 mass graves in which you have these little skeletons of little children who have been dumped there after being killed with brutality and ill treatment and malnutrition and, and who knows what. So this is just the tip of the iceberg. This is a systematic thing that happened all across North America, especially in Canada. This is a crime against humanity and the responsible parties are the Canadian government and the Catholic Church. So these... these uh. Responsible parties need to be called to account. They need to be, I I don't know what is to be done. What, what is the justice for this? This this happened many decades ago. But the nation of Canada and, and the United States too today is basically living the legacy of the, this brutality and this theft of land and this, this genocide that was perpetrated and this incredible cruelty that was perpetrated on small children. So who did this? Yeah, the Canadian government did did this and the Catholic Church did did this. These are the responsible parties. Okay, this is a question from Twitter. Hussein asks, um, as far as human history is concerned, what interests me is how did colonization destroy the natural world and wild animals? That's a very interesting question. So colonization... See before, when we talk about colonization, there are basically two main waves of colonization. The first was the uh, colonization that the Arabs did and the Turks did, which was basically the same culture eventually. And later you had the colonization that the Europeans did, right? So let's talk about European colonization first. What they did was basically they wanted, they uh, they became technologically advanced, more advanced than Asia and the rest of the world. And that's a long history. I'll not go into that right now. They became technologically advanced. They acquired new technologies. And they acquired the means to travel across the world in these ships. And they wanted to conquer new lands. And they knew there are new lands out there. So they were issued a carte blanche by by the Vatican, by the Catholic Church, which declared that any land that is not occupied by Christians is terra... Nullius, which is land that nobody owns, so you are allowed by the church. You, you, the Pope, gives you the dispensation, the 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 permission to go and conquer any territory where Christians don't live, and to acquire the lands, do what you please with them, and to enslave or murder the natives. It doesn't matter. That's fine. They are not Christians, so they they are basically not human. So this is what was uh, done by. uh, This is basically what gave them the uh, unimpeded. right or permission to, to go and do as they pleased. They would incur no sin from God for doing this. So not only did they conquer and colonize vast parts of Asia and Africa and the Americas, they proceeded to exploit the land. Because this is a new, uh, of, this is a culture which basically, see before European colonization happened, all the world, the uh, the parts of the world that they colonized were essentially polytheistic cultures, and polytheistic polytheism has one uh, characteristic that's common across all polytheistic belief systems, which is the worship of nature, the 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 idea that nature is sacred, animals have have some essence of divinity in them, so do plants, so do trees, so do, so does the land. So these polytheistic cultures would not exploit the land and plunder the land and view the land as a resource or the animals as a resource. Even if you see today in Mongolia, which is a meat eating nation, they do not waste even a scrap of meat. If they do kill an animal for its its meat, they ensure that it is utilized in its entirety. They don't waste anything. And the, the same thing will be seen everywhere in the world in polytheistic cultures. And nature is worshipped, land is worshipped, even the sky and the earth and everything is worshipped in polytheistic cultures. European colonization brought a different ideology, a different mindset, a different worldview. Everything that is God's creation is created for the enjoyment of man. That is this new thought process that came in with European colonization. So they proceeded to destroy and plunder the land they dug everything up for for coal and gold and and diamonds right and they destroyed enormous areas of forest for making farmland or, or for any purpose that they wanted for for the timber they killed millions hundreds of millions of bison in north america and almost wiped the species out and so the, so that's what's happening right about 200 years ago or about 150 years ago of the biomass, animal biomass, on the surface of the planet Earth was wild animals. Today, in 2021, 99% of the biomass of animals on the planet is livestock. Wild animals make make up only 1% of of the biomass of animals. And this livestock is all meant for human consumption in Europe and North America and other places. Right? So you have this, you have millions, hundreds of millions of cattle, cows and and pigs and other animals like, like chickens and turkeys and whatnot, who are raised only for their meat. They they undergo incredible cruelty on an industrialized scale. They never see sunlight. They are mistreated horribly and they live short lives full of pain and, and, and uh, anguish and then they are killed for their meat. And so much of this meat is wasted. It's just thrown away. And incredibly large amounts of forests are, been cleared, are being cleared to grow, produce that will feed this meat industry, that will feed this livestock that is destined to be killed. And that's why you're seeing deforestation happening across the Amazon uh, rainforest in Indonesia and, and everywhere else. They're, they're cutting forests to grow soy, soy, so that you can feed this soy full of protein to animals so that they will grow large and then they can eat them and kill them, uh, kill them and eat them. So it is this mindset that views nature as just a commodity, as just a resource to be enjoyed, to be utilized for the pleasure of man that has caused this incredible crisis that we are facing today. The oceans are full of plastic, species after species is, is being wiped out, the The atmosphere is polluted, the oceans are polluted, the rivers are polluted, the soil is polluted. It's all done because of this mentality that the world is a resource, nature is a resource to be exploited and to be enjoyed by man. And this entire system of capitalism that you see today is basically uh, nothing but a continuation of this mindset that you can have quarter upon quarter growth indefinitely on a finite planet. If you look at the uh, policies of various uh, various tech giants or, or various uh, companies like, let's say Apple, they come up with a new iPhone every year, every two years, and they wanted to throw away the old iPhone and buy the new one, right? And so the same goes for every other company, electronics company and all. Do you understand how much it, uh, how much mining is is done to 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 make one iPhone? How many precious metals? How many rare earths have to be mined for that? How many resource have to have, resources have to be pulled out of the earth to make one iPhone? And this is done year after year after year, so that you can have some incremental improvements in the technology. So this, uh, this this culture of of everything is disposable, and this culture of. Constant excess, this constant consumption, is destroying the planet. Climate change is a tr- is a reality, and it is all a consequence of this mindset, right? Of this ideology, of this worldview, that we can just keep on plundering this planet. So that's uh, in brief why we are in this situation today. That's what happened. That's how so much of nature was destroyed. So that's, that's how so many species are going ex- extinct as we speak. That's why there is so much animal cruelty in the world. And uh, right now, this is the dominant ideology, the dominant worldview. Everywhere, even India is adopting this. The Chinese are pursuing it full scale. So uh, that's the future as we speak right now, unless something drastically changes. Minakshi asks... Why did Julius Caesar never try to invade India? Well, uh, let me show you a map. It's always a map. Just give me a minute, please. Okay, it's a good question, right? Why did Julius Caesar never try to invade India? So this here is the map of the Roman Empire at the death of Julius Caesar. All right? So he con- So this is the Roman Empire, which basically is the Mediterranean world. The North Mediterranean regions, the Eastern Mediterranean, and the South Mediterranean, which is Northern Africa. So now the green, the areas shaded in green, are the conquests of Julius Caesar. It's basically Gaul, which is roughly present-day France. It is this part over here, if you can see my pointer, this part of Northern Africa. That is roughly today's uh, Algeria or thereabouts, yeah, and Caesar also uh, invaded uh, the British Isles, but he did not uh, establish a permanent Roman settlement there. So this is what Julius Caesar did. He also did some uh, campaigns in Hispania, which is which is basically Spain. But the real conquests of Caesar are France or Gaul and this little part of North Africa. He did have campaigns throughout the Roman Empire. But these are the two territories he conquered for Rome. So that's all it is. And even if he he had conquered all of this region, which is the Roman Empire, it's still very small compared to India. And it's still very far away from India. So geography tells you that Julius Caesar never really entered Asia unless you count this little part, Western Asia, as Asia anatolia and syria essentially so that's all his career was about he never went into asia it was too far away india was way too far for julius caesar and india was way too powerful for julius caesar he would have been he would have met the same fate as alexander if he had ever succeeded in in making his way to india and even if we look at the roman empire at its greatest extent for example here so this is the roman empire at its greatest extent, even then, in 117 AD, way after Julius Caesar died, more than 150 years after he died, still, the Roman Empire, at its greatest extent, is nowhere near India, right? So that, in itself, tells you why Julius Caesar never tried to invade India. India was never on his mind, India was way too far away, it was too perilous a trip to reach India, he would have had to go through Persia, which was quite powerful at the time itself. And even if he had reached India, he would have been been no match for India's military might. So I hope that explains why Julius Caesar never tried to invade India. Akash asks, why was China not condemned, sanctioned, or punished by the U.S. or other countries for the massacre at Tiananmen Square? How does China get away with every human rights violation while the Western media and European countries' governments keep belittling India on the issues of alleged minority suppression and alleged freedom of speech, even after India being a democracy in China a near dictatorship? Well, it's all about hard power. India has no hard power to speak of. China has a great deal of hard power in the form of military power and economic power especially. So when this Tiananmen Square massacre happened in 1989, if I'm correct, if that's the year, China and the US were in a very profitable, mutually profitable trade relationship, right? China was beginning to become the number one destination for US goods manufacture. China was the cheap source of manufactured goods. And China was benefiting a great deal from the U.S., but the U.S. was benefiting even more from China because it was able to get stuff manufactured on the cheap from Chinese uh, manufacturers. So it was not in the U.S. interest to impose harsh sanctions on the Chinese because it would affect their own industries and business and economy. So that is the leverage China had over the U.S., and over the years, China has uh, has basically uh, created more leverage through its manufacturing industries, through its manufacturing prowess. China basically manufactures everything, almost everything, for every Western nation, right? For every Western company. And, and it has a great deal of trade with all these con- countries. So it is no longer viable for any of these countries to impose any kind of sanctions on the Chinese. And nowadays, if the the chinese basically don't even allow anyone to criticize their policies for the same reasons because they have so much leverage in terms of trade they can ruin a country economically by imposing uh, trade sanctions on on them and the other thing is that they have they have bought various institutions with the power of money by bribing very uh, many various officials etc it's very easy to bribe people even in europe right Well, I'm not saying that they have bribed the WHO, but the WHO seems to be an organ of the Chinese Communist Party nowadays. So there is circumstantial evidence that it is in their pockets now, the WHO, and various um, ministers and officials and various European governments also kowtow to the Chinese on all kinds of issues, right? And the US media seems to have been bought over by the Chinese because they have not asked a single question of the Chinese in the past year and a half during the coronavirus pandemic. They have not asked the Chinese, why are no numbers coming out of China? What happened to the cases that were rising in early 2020? Why did you stop releasing numbers? What is happening in China? Who created the virus? Who released the virus? None of these questions have been asked by the Western media. These questions have been censored. Facebook has been censoring this. And it's, Various other social media platforms have been censoring these questions until very recently. And even if you look at Hollywood, Hollywood basically has been bought over by the Chinese. Every Hollywood movie has some Chinese character and some glorification of China. So this is how China has pursued its national interest by using the power of economics, by using the power of its economy, by using the power of money. And the Chinese started doing this when China's economy was smaller than what India's economy is today. So they always thought like a big power. They always thought like a world power. They always had the ambition of being a world power, in even when their economy was less than $2 billion, $2 trillion in total. So China has always had this ambition and this, uh, this outlook that we are, belong on the world stage as a major power so that is why the world treats china and india differently india despite being an enormous country despite being already a three trillion dollars economy doesn't ever behave like a great power right india hasn't invested in purchasing influence worldwide india hasn't developed a powerful economy or manufacturing sector Like the Chinese, India hasn't invested in in a powerful military. And that's why India is a soft nation, a soft state, a convenient punching bag for all and sundry. So that is the reason why India, despite being a democracy in China, despite being a totalitarian one-party state, despite these, these things, the Western media and the Western world prefers, I mean, always treats China with kid gloves while... Heaping scorn upon India. So that's a lesson for the political leadership of India to learn if they ever do learn it someday. Rakesh asks, How serious is the matter that China may invade Taiwan in the next few years? So we should go to the map. Let me once again uh, share the map that I have here. Where's my map? Here it is. This is the map. So let's take a look at Taiwan. Where is Taiwan? This is home base India for us. This is China, if you can see my mouse pointer. And this island here is Formosa or Taiwan. So Taiwan is for all intents and purposes an independent country. India doesn't recognize Taiwan as an independent country. India doesn't have any diplomatic ties with Taiwan but taiwan has its own government which is a democracy and taiwan is not is doesn't have any affiliation with the chinese communist party so china is, taiwan is a de facto independent nation china regards taiwan as a renegade province and china has explicitly stated that it seeks reunification reunification with taiwan on priority on priority basis so it's in my opinion as the strength of the united states declines as we speak and as china rises across all sectors economy military etc navy especially so i believe that it is quite likely that china will make a military move on taiwan within this decade maybe in the next 5 years maybe in the next 10 years china will do this when they when they judge that the time is right and when they judge that there will be no resistance from any other country, especially the United States. So they are constantly monitoring the declining strength of the US and the declining will of the US to play a major role in the global stage. And when they judge the time is right, they will make the move. I think it could happen within this decade, maybe in the next 5 years, next 10 years. It's a very serious matter. It's going to happen sooner or later. So that's the plan that The Chinese have been hatching for decades. It may come to fruition soon. And what does it mean for India? So China has developed, uh, has built up an enormous Navy, lots of submarines, an enormous number of battleships. Theirs is the largest Navy in the world today. It surpasses the strength of the United States Navy in terms of number of ships. The US Navy is still stronger than the Chinese in terms of number of missiles. but Numbers, quantity has a quality of its own, and China is investing in quantity. So if or when they take over Taiwan, then their navy will be free to move to other areas of the world. In other words, the navy will be free to move to the Pacific Ocean and try to dominate that region, and also to move into the Indian Ocean region and become the primary naval force in the Indian Ocean region. So when or if China does conquer Taiwan, they will move into the Indian Ocean region and try and become the primary power in the Indian Ocean region. So that is a direct challenge for India. And what should India do about this? Well, develop its own navy, which is not happening right now. So that in short, that in brief, is the matter of China and Taiwan. I think it will happen soon, definitely within this decade. Aryan asks, can dictatorship be better than democracy at the geopolitical level? Well, take a look at India and take a look at China. India is a, what do they say? A vibrant democracy, right? And China is a totalitarian one-party state. Well, in India's democracy, there is so much internal friction within the country. The entire energy of the nation is dissipated within itself, is dissipated internally because of so many different conflicts and so many petty uh, political fights and so many inter-regional rivalries and all these various divisions that India has within itself because of democracy, right? I am... A firm believer in democracy. Democracy is what India has practiced for thousands of years. Democracy was born in India, not in Greece. But the current form of democracy that we have is a fake democracy. It is a democracy only in name. It does more harm to the country than it does any good. We are allowed to vote, but try and stand for political office. Try and stand for election. See what happens. You have no chance because you don't have crores of rupees to spend on an election campaign unless you join a political party in which in which case you become part of the system right so this democracy is only for the political elite it only empowers them it doesn't empower the common citizen and this democracy in in india's india's democracy you have this system in which it's perfectly fine to be anti national to oppose india and to further the na- the interests of other countries other neighboring countries right So this democracy is extremely harmful to India's long-term national interest. That's the kind of democracy India has adopted. That's the kind of constitution India has. That's the kind of laws India has. And that's the kind of institutions India has, which are all inherently sabotaging its long-term national interest. On the other hand, China is a totalitarian one-party state, but it has political stability. It has political continuity. And they are working on the same agenda for the past 70 years. Right? And that's why they have been able to make so much progress. So on a geopolitical level, China has an advantage over India, an enormous advantage over India, an enormous advantage over almost any other country, including the United States. So that is the truth of the matter. Dictatorship is clearly better than democracy on a geopolitical level. It's not good for the people. It's terrible for the people. And that's why dictatorship is the wrong thing. But when you are faced with a totalitarian one party state that's intent on conquering the world, the best way to fight fire is with fire. So yes, when we are dealing with the situation, dictatorship seems to be, at least for the short term duration, better on the geopolitical level than democracy. But I am, let me repeat this. I am firmly in, in favor of democracy. I abhor dictatorship, I abhor totalitarian one-party rule or any such regime. The people must be supreme, but you need to have a democracy that empowers the people and empowers the nation and takes the nation in the right direction and which doesn't waste the entire energy of the nation within itself, fighting itself. Kishov asks, had the Kuomintang Party not been defeated and exiled to Taiwan at the hands of Mao Zedong's CCP, Communist Party, in the Chinese Civil War, what do you think would have been China's relationship with India today? Would China still pursue expansionist policies or would there have been peace between India and China and the South China Ch- China Sea? So let's assume that the Kuomintang had won the Chinese Civil War and they had come to power, let's say in 1949, well, the Kuomintang itself was an expansionist power. If they had conquered an area similar to what you have in China today, then they would have had similar policies in my opinion. Let us not forget, my friends, that the Kuomintang, which is that Taiwan, the nation of Taiwan, Taiwan, also lays claim to the whole of China, to the entirety of China, and they also lay claim to Arunachal Pradesh. So in essence, Taiwan supports the Chinese Communist Party's claim on Arunachal Pradesh, which is Indian territory. As of today, despite being a small nation and despite being uh, bullied by China. So Taiwan, even though it's a small, insignificant little country, it has territorial designs on India. So imagine if this system, this this, uh, regime was in power in China today it would behave in exactly the same fashion. And that's why I don't understand why so many Indians keep saying that India needs to develop further friendly relationship, friendly relations with, with Taiwan. We should recognize Taiwan as an as independent country, etc. The first condition should be that Taiwan should recognize India's territorial claims and it should respect India's territorial integrity, which Taiwan does not. And therefore, the answer to your question in short is that Taiva, is that the Kuomintang regime, had they won the Chinese Civil War, would have behaved in exactly the same fashion as the Chinese Communist Party does today. Atul asks, what could the future hold for the $3 billion by India, India's investment in Afghanistan of $3 billion, after the U.S. pulls out its troops from Afghanistan? you know the, there's this is question right what's the point of of acquiring a great deal of property and wealth if you can't de- if you can't defend it right today india is building a big economy but india is not building a correspondingly strong military arm the question is if you are building a, a big prosperous country with a huge deal of wealth huge amount of wealth What's the point of doing it if you are not willing to build an army to defend it, right? And the same goes for your investments. If you want to invest $3 billion in Afghanistan, you need to have a strategy strategy for protecting that investment. So India invested in a country $3 billion where it can't defend its investment, where it can't protect its investment. I am not saying that the investment was wrong. I I myself am strongly of the opinion that India should support the people of of Afghanistan and bring them back to uh, prosperity. But India can't do this. While Afghanistan is cut off from India, there is no common land border with India, which Afghanistan traditionally has had, right? If you look at uh, the POK region this here. India and Afghanistan have a common border, the Wakhan Corridor. But this region is currently occupied illegally by Pakistan. Therefore, India's access to Afghanistan is cut off. Now, if India was made this, uh, this investment in Afghanistan, India should have ensured that it regains land access to Afghanistan in order to safeguard its investment. Or India should have developed such a strong air force that it can... Save it can protect its investment in, investment in Afghanistan. So India essentially has invested three billion dollars into a country where it cannot safeguard or protect its investment. So what's going to happen now is that as soon as the Americans leave, the Taliban will take over. The Taliban this time will no longer be a prox- proxy of Pakistan. There will be a proxy of China primarily, and Pakistan will have some hand in it, and so will Russia, and so will Turkey. By the way, the Turks are also investing in Afghanistan now. And the Turks will have access to Afghanistan via Pakistan and also via Iran. Because Iran is also getting cozy with this particular gang. So what India has done, it has invested $3 billion into a country where it cannot protect its investment. So unless India in the next few months does something miraculous and regains land access to our neighboring country, Afghanistan, unless this unlikely event happens. In that case, this investment has gone down the drain. That's the long and the short of it. As a nation, how much influence does India have over the world? Maps again, sir, maps. Here's the map of India. You can see the whole of India, and you can see its neighbors. Let's let's forget about the world for now. Yeah, let's take a look at India's neighboring countries, Pakistan. We always start with Pakistan because until now, foreign foreign uh, affairs meant Pakistan. So, how much India? How much influence does India have in Pakistan? The answer is zero. Afghanistan. How much influence does India have in Afghanistan? It's almost zero now. It's it's getting over. Tajikistan. I mean. We don't even know that Tajikistan exists, by the way. So zero influence there. Tibet, our neighboring country, which is now part of China. What's the influence of India today there? Zero. Nepal. Well, India has a land border with Nepal. India has an open border with Nepal. So India does have a great deal of soft power in Nepal. But if you ask today, who has more sway in Nepal, India or China? The answer is increasingly China. How much influence does India have in Bhutan today? Is India able to protect Bhutan, Bhutan from Chinese land grabs? No. No. So, the influence is waning. How much influence does India have on Bangladesh? <laughs> Bangladesh is basically taking over India right now through illegal immigration. Right? There are millions of Bangladeshis all across India. So I would say that there is more Bangladeshi influence in India than there is Indian influence in Bangladesh. When it comes to Myanmar, does India even know that Myanmar exists? Does India have any say in what happens in Myanmar? No. So India's influence is close to zero. Other countries, Thailand, which is very close to India, it's about 250 kilometers away from the Andaman Islands do indians even know that thailand is a thailand is a neighboring country of india no so india's influence is close to zero there indonesia indonesia is just a stone throws away from india it's a neighboring country nobody in india no even knows this so india's influence in, in indonesia is zero unfortunately sri lanka they are still killing our fishermen aren't they and 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 the and capturing our fishermen jailing our fishermen does india have much influence there. India does have a great deal of influence compared to other countries in Sri Lanka, yes. Uh, I think things are better nowadays. So yeah, India has some influence in Sri Lanka. Let's give it that. And the Maldives, well, I don't know what influence India has in the Maldives. So even if you look at India's near abroad, the countries that should be part of the Indian subcontinent that have that are geographically part of the Indian subcontinent, India has very little influence there despite being such a large and powerful country. So if India has so little influence here, what influence does India have over the world? Tell me. I think that answers your question. As things stand today, India has singularly failed to develop any form of leverage or influence of any kind Worldwide, India in the past seventy years, years has been an insular, in, inward-looking country. We have spoken about look east. We looked east; nothing happened. Recently, we have spoken about acting east, act east. I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. What acting east have we done? So, India just talks. India is great with slogans, but India's leadership, India's politicians, don't basically are unable or unwilling to leverage India's incredible strength and potential in creating influence networks worldwide. There is a skill, there is an art and a science to creating influence networks. Influence is about networks. Power is about networks, right? And that's what politicians uh, are, are naturally good at. And yet in the case of the national interest, they haven't taken the time to develop these networks. So, to answer your question in short india has very little influence over the world very little krishna asks please tell us about the indus waters treaty it is said that by 2050 east punjab will be deserted thanks to this treaty then what is the solution for all this mess let's go back to the map sir let's go back back to the map okay the indus river the indus region the saptasindhu region which is historically sindh punjab sindh and punjab basically and these re, these rivers these six or seven rivers they start up north in the himalayan uh, region of india so this great river here is the sindhu this is chenab okay this is chenab the Sindhu is here. Indus—it's now in Pakistan. It starts in India. It it flows through Kashmir, etc. So this treaty was was agreed upon between India and Pakistan in I think 1960 or somewhere in that in that time, uh, in that uh, period of time. It was signed by our 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 great state statesman of a prime minister, Shri Jawaharlal Nehruji, Pandit Jawaharlal Nehruji with whoever was the pakistani uh, dictator or puppet at the time and in this treaty india agreed this treaty was brokered brokered by the world bank and various other uh, first world powers right and under this treaty india agreed to give up 80% of the waters of the indus river uh, system all the all these rivers the Ravi, chenab beas satluj sindhu etc so India, so Shri and Nehru decided to give up 80% of the waters of this river system to Pakistan. India gets 20% and the World Bank is the mediator in, ca- in the case of any conflict. I think it's the World Bank or maybe it's the UN or whatever. Doesn't matter. It's not us. It's somebody else. So this is the... Uh, most unequal treaty in the history of the civilized free world, I would say. And one of the worst treaties in the history of India. And there must have been some some reason for it because Shri Jawaharlal Nehru was a great statesman. He was very respected on the world stage by the English-speaking people. So uh, so it's been a very bad treaty for India. Let me come back to being non-sarcastic. It's, it's a terribly unequal treaty. It is extremely unjust to the people of India, to the farmers of northern and western India who could have benefited from the from the waters of, the, of this river system. I, I don't know if by 2050 East Punjab or Indian Punjab will be deserted because of this, but well, it's so unequal, it's shocking, right? So what is the solution to this mess? The solution to this mess is the solution to the Kashmir problem and the Pakistan problem. See, I, by no means, I, by no means, have any animosity or hatred towards the people of Pakistan, okay? The the people of Pakistan are our own people. They are our own blood. They share the same DNA as us. Their mindset is different today. Their culture is different. They have gone in a different direction. That is their choice. Fine, whatever. I don't wish them harm. I don't wish them ill. But the solution, the long-term solution to India's geopolitical issues is the natural breakup peaceful breakup of this temporary nation called Pakistan because it, it should never have been created. It was created without consulting the people of India. It was, it was created by a foreign occupying power, right? And their stooges. So Pakistan is Indian territory. It has been India's territory. It is our ancestral land that has been our ancestral land for thousands of years. Okay. So it needs to eventually, when the time is right, be reintegrated into India, into the Indian civilization, into the arms of mother India. But the first step is to break up this artificial country. And the first step is to diffuse this time bomb that is the Pakistan military, right? Usually a country has a military. In the case of Pakistan, a military has a country, an army has a country, and they are basically oppressing this country and leaching out all the everything that's good from it so this needs to end india needs to engineer a peaceful solution to this this problem right and when this solution happens the industry waters treaty will be null and void because pakistan will have ceased to exist as as a unified state so india needs to ideally engineer this without going to war, without firing a single shot and do it in a peaceful manner, which is good for the people of India and good for the people of Pakistan as well, because those are our people too. So that is the solution to this mess. It's not going to happen in the next five years. It should happen. India should try and make this happen in the next 10, maximum, maximum 20 years. So that is the solution to this entire mess. Akash asks, Winston Churchill was openly racist, famously called the Indians a beastly people with a beastly religion. He made a hierarchy of races, putting the Protestants at the top, Catholics next, and so on. Why then is such a person, why then was such a person revered at the time, and even nowadays is considered a war hero and an excellent leader? You see, Winston Churchill was an excellent leader for his people. He served the people of the UK. And for him, his national interest meant destroying India and, and impoverishing India further and, and basically stealing India's uh, India's grain and everything and, and unleashing a man-made genocidal famine in Bengal, etc. He was a racist person, etc. We all know that. These are open secrets. So why is this not ta- spoken about? Because we don't speak about it. Because the Indian government doesn't publicize this. Because Indian historians don't write about this. India should organize a conference or a series of conferences which basically go into the truth about the British occupation of India, especially the 20th century British occupation history of India, in which the truth will come out about people like Vincent Churchill and all that. It should become a matter of shame to glorify Vincent Churchill. Today in France, they're discussing the legacy of Napoleon Bonaparte because Napoleon apparently, uh, not apparently, definitely, he reintroduced, re, reintroduced slavery in the French possessions in the West Indies, in Haiti, etc. So this is something the British were doing too. Right, But because Napoleon did this, he is now considered to be an evil tyrant because black lives matter. You know what? Black lives do matter. And what the British and the Europeans did to the black people is inhumane. So yes, black lives matter, but all other lives matter too. And what about Indian lives? What about the 100 million plus Indians the British killed? And what about the 10 million Bengalis Winston Churchill killed? It is our fault that it is not a matter of, matter of shame in the West to glorify Winston Churchill. It's our fault. It is not my fault and your fault, Akash, or the, or the fault of the people who are watching this today or in the future. It's the fault of the Indian government and the, and the fault of the Indian academic system and the fault of the Indian historians that they have done nothing to bring out the truth about Winston Churchill. So it is their fault. It, it needs to happen. I would give a proper suggestion to the government of India, if you're listening, hold a conference about Winston Churchill, only Winston Churchill and his Indian connection, his career in India and the policies that he pursued in India. Hold a conference, call scholars from all over the world. Nobody will be able to deny what Winston Churchill did. Publicize this all over the world. Publicize it on social media the indian government uh, ministries have instagram handles and twitter handles and facebook uh, pages put this all over it right create videos of this and and publish the proceedings of this conference right and and make it available as as a, as a book let's do it and see what happens the entire perception will change but india's government is simply isn't isn't concerned in in, in doing this and that's why My problem is not that the West keeps glorifying Winston Churchill. My problem is that the majority of Indians think, they they look upon Churchill as some kind of a hero. And they don't even know what he did in India. So that's what needs to happen. I hope it happens soon. Aman asks, How does Russia maintain the second most powerful military in the world with just $65 billion in defense expenditure? So the good thing about for Russia is that they did not have to build a military from scratch. They inherited a powerful military from the USSR. So whatever they are spending, whatever the military expenditure is, is mostly maintenance. They are not building more things. They are actually streamlining the military. They are cutting down on manpower because today it's all about technology. You don't need 2 million soldiers. You can do the job with 500,000 or even 300,000, and you can invest more in acquiring the technology and the delivery systems and, and the aircraft and the submarines and the Navy, the, the destroyers and battleships, etc., and the missiles, that and the satellites and the cyber warfare capabilities, etc., that actually constitute 21st century warfare. So because of these technological advances, they are able to invest more in technology. They have a very active technology program. They are always developing new weaponry, right? They, they have some of the best fighter jets in the world. They have excellent ballistic missiles. They have a strong Navy. They have a very good submarine program that has seen lots of iterations of submarines. So basically what they're doing is they're maintaining this. They're cutting down on manpower. They're streamlining the military and they understand the value of the military and one more thing my dear friends there is something called a black budget a black budget that is a secret budget that is not publicized and i think every self respecting country has a black budget so if 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 the chinese are spending 150 billion dollars per year on the military It's most likely that the amount would be double that, but they're not not publicizing it. The Americans have an official back budget that they don't disclose. And I can guarantee that the Russians have one too. So that's how they're able to uh, maintain the very powerful military that they do have. And the real strength of the Russian military is the nuclear ballistic missiles. They have thousands of these. Nobody dares to even look at the Russians with an evil eye. Because the Russians can wipe you out from the map of the world. So that is what keeps the Chinese in check thus far. And that's the answer. That's why the Russians are able to do what they do with the budget that they do disclose. Because they probably have a black budget and because they are maintaining, not developing new things. Especially not developing new hardware or investing in manpower. Aryan asks, what... um, can you explain the rise of Singapore after decolonization and separation from Malaysia, and what its what is its current standing in geopolitics? So Singapore basically was formed in the mid. Uh, I don't remember the exact time span, forties, fifties, thereabouts. Yeah, it separated from Malaysia. The leader of Singapore, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew, wanted a unified state with Malaysia. The Malaysians did not agree, so he had to reluctantly. Uh, run his own independent city-state of Singapore. It's a very tiny island on which there is one city, and that's what he governed. And what Mr. Lee Kuan Yew did was that he was the de facto dictator of, of Singapore. And the thing about him was that he was a benevolent dictator. He is what's called a benevolent dictator. He spent his entire life, his entire career on trying to trying to uplift Singapore. So within a single generation, within a span of two decades, less than two decades, he took this third world, impoverished city-state and transformed it into a first world nation. Right? And he did it by... By r- radically revolutionizing the economy, he completely revamped the economy, he instituted capitalism, laissez capitalism, laissez faire capitalism means no restrictions. just do what you can, do what you want. no restrictions, no 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 uh, the kind of restrictions you have in India upon entrepreneurship and capitalism. none of that was there. Right, so you so foreign countries were free to invest as much as they wanted. They were free to buy and acquire Singaporean companies or or a, or other entrepreneurial outfits, etc. So there was a great amount of foreign in of money that flowed into Shri- into Singapore, and by means of these policies and by means of this iron-fisted control over Singapore and these very effective laws and the very effective implementation of the laws that Mr. Lee Kuan Yew was able to transform Singapore within a single generation. And it's become one of the most powerful economies in the world. It's very influential. The Chinese have copied the Singapore model in transforming their economy as well. So that's what happened. That's what one man did in one lifetime, in less than one lifetime, right? So Singapore was and still is a one-party state. Singapore was a one-man dictatorship under Lee Kuan Yew. It was a benevolent dictatorship. He was very harsh with his critics and with the people who broke the laws. But apart from that, he basically uh, enriched Singapore and he gave the people of Singapore one of the highest per capita GDPs and one of the highest standards of living that you can find anywhere in the world. But it uh, it was all according to the law that he laid down. Right, so that's why he he's thought of as a dictator. Its current standing in geopolitics is not much because in geopolitics, as a powerful economy is not enough. You need to have a military strength as well. And Singapore, being a single small city-state, doesn't have a powerful military. It just can't have one. So that's why it, it doesn't have any significant standing in geopolitics. But it's a shining light in in the economic world, definitely. Saurajit asks, do you think companies like Twitter are being used by the Chinese Communist Party to create disharmony in India? If yes, then how can it be created? So listen, um, whether it's the CCP or whether it's the US government or whether it is uh, other vested interests in the Western world, whoever it is, social media is definitely something that can be leveraged to create a great deal of disharmony in any country and in india it's definitely the case that certain people get blocked or banned me myself i i had i had, i lost 20000 followers in one day uh, on on twitter because they decided to cut off 20000 followers and, and so many people have been targeted like this people have been blocked and banned for no reason And uh, ostensibly for for sharing some fake document or fake news, while some other fake news propagators are given blue ticks, etc. So there is definitely a political angle to this. A certain political ideology is allowed to have free reign on Twitter, while certain other political viewpoints or worldviews are suppressed and censored on Twitter. So that's very much the case. Recently, you have blatant interference in the internal affairs of, of India when they take away blue ticks from the vice president of India and they they blocked the law minister of India, right? So I don't blame Twitter for this. My point is why can't India create a new law for social media which will regulate the entire behavior of any social media company which operates in India, in the Indian cyberspace? Make a very clear, unambiguous set of laws that will decide how what sort of speech is allowed what sort of speech is not allowed what kind of action gets you banned whether you can appeal a ban or not everything should be decided should be put down in indian law why can't the government of india enact a law like that that regulates social media uh, we see the the law minister of india complaining on twitter that i was blocked for i was blocked for an hour or two hours or whatever the law minister, is unwilling to lay down the law to Twitter. That is the kind of pusillanimity we are seeing today. I think it is a matter of great shame for India that India's political leaders use Twitter and Instagram as the primary means of communicating with the people of India. Right? I I think it's a matter of shame that this happens. Why hasn't India developed its own news and, and policy dissemination organ, like the Chinese have, like the Russians have, like the US has. Every ministry should have its own daily news briefings in which, in which uh, attendance by media houses should be compulsory, right? And they should be uh, disseminated on an Indian platform. Why hasn't India developed such a platform? Why do India's leaders use foreign platforms for communicating with the people of India. I think it's a matter of great shame and I'm very disappointed. So yes, companies like Twitter, et cetera, can be used to create disharmony in India. And unfortunately the Indian government is is behaving like it has no power whatsoever in its own country. And I don't blame Twitter for this. I blame the government of India. So there you are. Okay, my friends, I am done with the questions. Let me see if there are some interesting live chat questions. This has gone on for a very long time today. Okay. Let me see. Live chat. First, let me remove this question. Here we go. Okay, there are lots and lots of questions. Uh, World history or geopolitics? China communicates with their people on their own platforms. They use Twitter to communicate with the rest of the world. Look at that. Brilliant, brilliant. Very good observation. They utilize the Western platforms to disseminate propaganda and misinformation in the West. But they don't allow platforms like Twitter within China. They have their own platforms. Now, I am not saying that India should block everything out and have a closed insular system. I am saying India should lay down the law within India in Indian cyberspace. And all these social media platforms should be made to comply with Indian law when it comes to Indian social media accounts and the Indian cyberspace. So good point, sir, very good. Okay, some more interesting questions. Direen Menden asks, today India is looking for FDI FBI for prosperity. Is there any way to enhance the Indian economy through indigenous resources and innovation? Launch a big development campaign, right? How did the Americans become so wealthy? How did they become such a powerful economy? They become a powerful economy because they invested an enormous amount in the uh, arms and defense industry they they were in a period of a great depression in the 1930s the 1930s was an enormously was a terrible depression in the us a great economic depression the country was in poverty and then the first, the second world war happened and the whole country the entire workforce of the, of the country was was uh, put to use in in uh, creating in developing weapons in manufacturing weapons and that is what built up the economy again after the the Fukushima earthquake, the the Tohoku the, the earthquake in in Japan in 2011, they embarked upon a rebuilding program which again boosted the economy. So why can't India boost the economy by by embarking upon a large-scale uh, infrastructure building program and and arms in industri- and, and uh, in boosting the arms industry. We need ships, we need a powerful Navy. we need a more powerful air Force. we need a more powerful in, uh, military right? Army. So why can't we invest in that? It will cre- create a great uh, great amount of jobs. It will create infrastructure. And it will create a great demand for other things as well from for other technologies, which will boost other sectors as well. So that is one idea. The ideas are, uh, there are lots of ideas, there are lots of solutions. The thing is, does the government have the will and the fortitude to do this? We see the closure of the Sterlite copper plant in, in southern India because certain NGOs demonstrated against that. And because of that, India has become a net importer of copper instead of being a net exporter, which it was before this plant was closed down. So the actions that are taken, the decisions that are taken are all against the national interest. All we need to do is to, f- is to follow the national interest, right? So there are many ways of doing this. I am not an economist, but I can give some the suggestions based on historical precedent, right? so it is definitely possible for india to become a prosperous country and a powerful country in all domains in within one generation it is very much possible all we need is the right leadership all right um Will monarchy be reinstated in Nepal? I think it's it's too far down the road for that. Uh, Nepal has changed a lot. It was Rajiv Gandhi who had the monarchy removed. It was a covert operation, a long-term operation, and that's what India did. And that's how Nepal went from being the last Hindu nation in the world to being a almost communist country today, right? Under the Chinese influence. So that's unfortunate and disappointing. Why is India not a tourism hub? Because the government isn't investing in tourism. India has the capability, the potential to become a tourism superpower. India has so much ancient culture, so many archaeological monuments, so many uh, brilliant, beautiful pieces of architecture, so many temples. India has every climate, every terrain you can think of. India has forests, it has mountains, it has glaciers, it has snow, it has uh, uh, You can do water sports in India. There are so many beaches. India has one of the longest coastlines in the world. India has islands. There is everything in India for India to become a tourism superpower. Why is it not a tourism hub? Because the Ministry of Tourism is a failure. The Ministry of Tourism should be embarking upon. I mean, this can boost the Indian GDP by several percentage points. Just tourism itself. It can bring in bring in billions of dollars of revenue every year, and it can enhance India's standing worldwide. If so many if so many people come to India for tourism, the Ministry of Tourism is a non-performing ministry. It is a failure, right? It is wasting money on on opening offices across the world. Why do you need to open offices in Sydney and in the U.S. when you have the internet today? Why do you need Indian uh, Ministry of Tourism offices across the world? Why? It's a waste of money. It's a, it's a means of giving nice deputations to various bureaucrats abroad. So these are the reasons why India is not a tourism hub. Okay, one final question for today. Was Julius Caesar kidnapped by King Vikramaditya's soldiers? The brief answer is no. All right, my friends, it's been a wonderful session. Wonderful questions. Thank you so much for your questions. Thank you for your viewership. Keep, keep the questions coming. Tomorrow we have another very interesting session. And until then, thank you very much. I wish you a good day, good night, wherever you are. I will see you tomorrow. Bye.